Warning, this program typically features respectful, nuanced, and well-informed commentary, strong language, obscure pop culture references, and spurious allegations. The bigger story here, let's not bury the lead, are people stupid enough at $100,000 spent <laughs> to like mobilize some people in an anti-immigrant way? They're like, you know what? Before this, I can't believe it. I was like, you know, ferrying people across <laughs> the border. I was like handing out toys at the border and like water when they crawled into the wire. <laughs> now I'm going to vote for Trump, uh, you know, build a wall MAGA. That didn't happen. We, we, we know of new methods of attack. Greetings and welcome back to another exciting installment of the fifth column podcast. This is your almost weekly, mostly generally weekly rhetorical assault on the news cycle, the people that make it and sometimes ourselves because we we sometimes check those boxes too. Um, This is episode 74. Recorded on the evening of September 21st, 2017, the UN is like in session and doing things. There are all kinds of crazy things going on. And most importantly, I'm Camille Foster of Freethink, and I am joined here in our Manhattan studio, way too close to Time Friggin' Square, by Matt Welch, editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, and Michael Moynihan, national correspondent of HBO's Vice News Tonight, is... Somewhere in Brooklyn, in a in a. I'm across bunker. the river. I don't want to go to Times Square. It's a fucking nightmare. No, no. Today, today you are. Uh, you're quite right. The only thing is, you miss out on the uh, on the canned sangria that we are <laughs> we're drinking today. <laughs> which I'd asked I asked Welch a little earlier, and I know you'll probably poo poo it in one hand, but I think that that it makes us super fancy and not super lame to be drinking canned sangria today. Portland sangria. Can you uh, show your math on that and tell me how you think that's possible? Because I'm because I'm involved. There's no cool going on because I'm not even in the studio. And <laughs> I've already heard that Matt's wearing cargo shorts. This Listen, is, this is true. This is true. He is in fact wearing. It's cargo the last shorts. day of summer. No, it's not. It is. Is it really? Technically it the last. Rosh Hashanah shorts? Last, it's Rosh Hashanah, yes. And Camille's already working through the protocols, uh, like uh, in the pregame here. I'm trying to think of the, the protocols of the show or the protocols of the elders of Zion. Exactly. Definitely. I mean, kind of a twofer. Camille's always good at checking two boxes at once. Yes, this is true. <laughs> one block says not black, and then the other one, Valerie Plame fan club. But wait, I should I should thank I should thank the fan, uh, Chris. George, who sent us this this canned sangria in various flavors. I'm drinking the uh, the marvelous blueberry with basil. I see, I see Welch is simple, sipping on some sort of pink can. Dry rosé, a wine spritz. Oh, man. Here. Oh, God. What? <laughs> what is going on over there? Deliciousness? Let's, let's guess what Moynihan's like cranking back in Williamsburg. <laughs> is it the champagne of beers or is it the champagne of beers? Beers. I am literally at my kitchen table and I've got like an eight ball cut out in neat little lines <laughs> waiting for this to get boring so I can just, you know, be happy again. This can't be boring <laughs> this week. There's so much happening in the in the world this week. We've got uh, foreign leaders and dignitaries from around the world descending on the city of New York. There were speeches and press events and photo ops and more speeches. But of course, there was one thing that was more important than all of the rest. There was one gentleman who turned more heads and created more controversy than anyone else. The neophyte statesman, reality TV star and president of the United States, the notorious DJT. (laughs) Trump shows up. He reads from the prompter and uh, controversy ensues. He gave a speech that Matt Welch called the most eloquent 
political oration he has ever heard in his life. You, um, you are the worst person at sarcasm. Yeah, that's true. Who's ever lived. That's true. No, um, it wasn't that. Um, it might have been the opposite of that. No, actually. Um, uh, but, but a lot of people, a lot of people are saying that this is uh, <coughs> super dangerous rhetoric coming from the president. Um, there were many folks, um, including the editorial board at the uh, New York Times. The United Nations isn't the venue one would expect for threatening war. Yes, that's what President Trump did in his first address to the General Assembly. Um, he did a lot more than just that. Um, and, and I think we should probably tick through some of those things. But gentlemen, I wonder, um, just to sort of get us started here, and we'll, we'll go other places as well, but what were your thoughts on this, uh, on this UN speech delivered by the President of the United States? Well, the, uh, I mean, he did say that if forced to defend our allies in the region, and that's a very important preamble that people haven't uh, dwelled on because the next uh, statement is pretty awesome. Uh, we will totally destroy uh, North Korea. And furthermore, uh, you know, Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and his for his regime. He said he said Rocket Man, uh, mm -hmm. which is really great. And it's a shiny object for everyone to hold on to because he said Rocket Man and he said totally uh, destroy. He was in that. And it makes it interesting to to think about and work through, he was reiterating what is and has been American policy forever. There is no change in even implied in that speech. We react to foreign policy so stupidly in this country. We react, I think, to uh, the shiny baubles, which is rhetoric, tone, words like this more than the underlying policy. I mean, I think you could you could very legitimately write a story about Donald Trump's North Korea policy and say he's trying to be more like Obama than Obama. What has he done? He's gotten an, a U.N. Security Council vote, except he actually kind of persuaded uh, Russia and China to go with, you know, a sanctions regime. Let's let's uh, increase sanctions even more. He tries he's trying to persuade the regional uh, 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 partners there and actors, China, South Korea and, and Japan in different uh, modes of reassurance or, or uh, persuasion uh, to get more involved in this. But that's essentially an Obama-ite thing in that uh, he's not prepared to go to war at all. He's just saying that if you bomb Seoul, we will destroy you and wipe you off the map. That is totally what it's been forever. Um, but just tonight, as we're settling in here and getting ready for Camille's upcoming anti-Semitic assault... Um, <laughs> Uh, Kim Jong-un reacted to the shiny bobble of the totally destroyed everything and, and read this absolutely hilarious speech. Moynihan, have you seen this speech yet? The dope card? It's the best. It is like the great thing. <laughs> I got an alert on my phone. Uh-huh. At, it said uh, from the Washington Post, it said North Korean leader responds to Trump. I will surely indefinitely tame the mentally deranged U.S. dotard with fire, which I thought um, I'm stressing the tard there, the dotard. tard. Which, <laughs> the, the interesting thing is that this rarely happens with North Korea. You always get the bananas statement that is put together like one of those puzzles that you have on a refrigerator. It has a whole bunch of words and you kind of arrange it when you get drunk. It kind of sounds like that plus with Google Translate. <laughs> rarely, rarely do you ever have it in the first person. I will 
And uh, Kim Jong-un says, you know, I, he's proven my point. I am more resolute than I have ever been. And using the I is a, is a, is a new one. But it was an amazing statement. I, I'll pull it up and I'll read selections from it in a hilariously offensive voice. Are you saying that you <laughs> are you saying that you think this has a ring of authenticity to it because it says a mentally deranged dotard? Like, is that is that I know. Wow. I mean, I was like I was like, well played. Yeah, <laughs> that was that's like, pretty good. It sounded like something from a PG Woodhouse character. No, it's pretty, it's pretty funny. But um, no, it's in the spirit of every response that the North Koreans have ever given. Um, or actually I would say that it kind of starts with, uh, with his father, that, those types of responses. Mm-hmm. Um, but the first person is amazing, that, K- that Kim Jong-un is taking this very personally. Now it's Trump against Kim the Younger, the very younger. It says Trump uh, has denied the existence of and insulted me and my country in front of the eyes of the world. So <laughs> bro took the bait. Uh, I, I, I think on a, on a policy level, uh, so the interesting thing in, in Trump's whole speech, which I think was incoherent in a really uh, oh, yeah. base structural way that Trump's whole foreign policy is in, incoherent, mostly surrounding the word sovereignty, which he invoked 21 different times in this. Uh, is, in, is that the the to, is that the final count? 21. I you know, I hit control F and that's yeah. the number it came up. I, so, I believe you. Like, dude, you yeah, know, it's there's a lot. A, it's, it was a lot. Uh, but it, it was incoherent because he was stressing sovereignty, sovereignty, sovereignty and then saying and, you know, all options are on the table with Venezuela uh, <laughs> and uh, Cuba in our hemisphere. But that's consistent. What we've talked about before with his uh, Warsaw speech, he had a kind of a similar thing. It's he stresses sovereignty as this uh, 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 way that we can preserve sort of this culture and even the kind of the broader uh, concept of the West and that we can also fend off those nasty, you know, international bureaucrats from Brussels and people making all these trade arrangements and this kind of stuff and that are bad because sovereignty is good. But he also proposes that there should be spheres of influence mm-hmm. and the U.S. sphere of influence is in Latin America, in, in the Western Hemisphere. Um, that Those two things are as incoherent as it gets. Mm-hmm. I mean, Russia has a sphere of influence or thinks it does and it's near abroad and in exercising it violates other countries' sovereignty. Sure. And that's kind of what uh, Trump is. China, is, uh, China as well. With the presupposing and all this kind of stuff. But the one thing that Trump does that's different in North Korea, and this is consistent about this during the campaign and as president for the most part, at every opportunity, he said, we have too many troops over there. Uh, and for too long, people have taken for granted us being the kind of lead uh, actor in this in this uh, race. And since becoming president, he's in, embraced this uh, kind of uh, uh, strategic uh, instability or strategic, uh, it, uh, not incoherence, but he's trying to bluff. He's trying to sound Jacksonian. It's like when Ted Cruz said, you know, let's turn the Middle East into sand while at the same time he's against nation building. It's a way to, to appeal to Americans to say the fuck yeah at the end of it. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, what you're proposing is much less interventionist than it is. Uh, uh, this is in the Ted Cruz case um, than uh, what we've seen uh, up to this point. Now, this is interesting in that it seems to have provoked a response to South Korean president who ran, as far as I can tell, in his recent election on we're going to talk with North Korea, recently said, we're not fucking going to talk to North Korea. Screw those guys. And they've been making pretty pro-Trump noises. Um, I think that there is something positive about one aspect of what Trump is doing, which is that it sounds like South Korea and Japan have are taking a sense of more responsibility for their own affairs. And I think that ha- that has to happen um, for anything good to happen. However, we 
should also point out that, what was it in January at Moynihan where Trump was like, well, we'll, we'll never see another uh, missile test because, you know, the new sheriff's in town. <laughs> Ever since then, we've seen nothing but flying missiles over like the continent of Japan and threats to wipe Guam off the map and all this kind of stuff. So it's brinksmanship. Um, and that is scary. And, and the words are, I mean, obviously, the North Korean uh, dictator is freaking out on uh, soiling himself in public at, at this point. So we don't know where it's going to end up. But it's very interesting to see how people uh, uh, just because of the tone of the language act like we're in some crazy new place. We're in a new place and there's some crazy words, but it isn't all that new, I don't think. No, I mean, the, 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 the tweeting, that kind of stuff. It, 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 it's sort of like you gain absolutely nothing from it. Does it actually push us closer to war? That's the kind of rhetoric that you hear all the time. No, I don't think that that Kim Jong-un is, is, is far more rational, despite the banana statements that come out of Pyongyang, than to say that I am going to, to create a situation in which my country will be destroyed because of the bad man's tweets. Uh, no, it doesn't help anything, though. Yeah. And it doesn't, it doesn't do much as far as our allies are concerned. I mean, you see the only thing that has any teeth at all. I mean, Trump, Trump uh, uh, issued this uh, executive order that uh, would allow the Treasury to target individuals and, com- and you know, companies. A new to trade, round of uh, sanctions. Korea. Yeah. That's like China, and that's basically nothing. So, but with the Chinese, according to a report uh, from Reuters today, what the Chinese uh, did, the Chinese central bank said to other banks in China, and this applies to itself too, that they would actually obey the new UN sanctions, which has gotten the seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth round of sanctions since 2006 on on the North Koreans, uh, in in and tell its financial institutions to stop all business with North Korea. Now, considering that it's the only country that really does business with North Korea in any sizable and significant way, this is going to have teeth. And, you know, the, the response from Pyongyang is, we don't care. We've gone through this before. Well, you haven't gone through something like this before. And the North Korean economy is relative to how it's been in the past, been actually, you know, healthier than it's been in the past. And again, <laughs> relative. I'm that, yes. I, I, I'm not saying the North Korean economy is healthy. I'm yeah. just saying you know, this is slightly better than it's been in the past. And this will bite. The way sanctions are supposed to work, of course, is that it's going to bite, right? And then the people will rise up. That's not going to happen in North Korea. So is it going to have an effect on bringing them closer to the table and making a deal that they will then cheat on like his father did uh, in the Clinton administration? There was, there was you know, the deal in 94 that was ultimately cheated on a number of times. Um, yeah. And it will back to what uh, everybody in North Korea world calls kicking the can down the road. Yeah, that's going to happen, I suspect. I mean, that's the only weapon you have right now is sanctions. What else is there? The administration came in hot and heavy saying that the era of strategic patience, which is a term of art during the, I think, the Hillary Clinton era at the at the State Department towards uh, North Korea, but certainly in the Obama administration, is the era of strategic patience is over. And so, OK, so what what does that mean? What does strategic impatience look like? And so far, what it looks like is. Uh, the president of the United States acts like a crazy man <laughs> strategically. I mean, at least they argue this and it's a, it's a con it's a considered policy as a way to try to convince freaked out other countries to join and add teeth to a sanctions regime and or maybe take more control over it. But mm-hmm. at some point and we're only what, eight months into this presidency, nine months um, at some point, people are going to realize He's not going to totally destroy anybody. You, you don't think folks have realized that already? I, I, I get the sense that they 
my sense is that folks know what's going on here. I, I guess the question is, who is folks? I'm yeah. not sure. I, I suspect North Korea is probably among those folks. I'm, I don't know. Look, look at that video. Look, see all the green books behind him? I, I mean, look, you know, <laughs> ratcheting up the rhetoric is is one thing, but I I, I don't know. Maybe I, maybe I need to learn to get more concerned. Um, the Huckabee Sanders response to this uh, when she tweeted out the quote from Obama, and, and I've got the clip, so it might be worth just to quickly playing them. The United States has great strength and patience, but if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. Rocket Man is on a suicide mission for himself and for his regime. The United States is ready, willing, and able, but hopefully this will not be necessary. That's what the United Nations is all about. The United Nations. The United Nations. (laughs) (laughs) The amazing thing about this was the Rocket Man thing. Yeah. was funny because I thought it was very particular to being in a tweet. Uh, It exists in a very tweet-like way. That's a very Donald Trump way of tweeting. Yeah, I think that I, I think really that was one of his flourishes. But in front of the United Nations, he actually called him Rocket Man <laughs> and then mispronounced the United Nations and then made up a country. I've got the Obama um, clip uh, of him making the remarks that uh, Huckabee Sanders referred to. It's not something that lends itself to an easy solution. We could obviously uh, uh, destroy North Korea with our arsenals. But aside from the humanitarian costs of that, uh, they are right next door to our vital ally, Republic of Korea. Clearly, the president isn't at the U.N. uh, giving remarks uh, at that particular moment in time. Um, I think there is a symmetry with the with the sentiment being expressed there, though, the the sort of bellicose threat, essentially, in Obama's case, a heck of a lot more implicit with uh, Trump's, in Trump's case, a very explicit threat. We stand prepared to do this. We can do this. We're capable and ready to do it. If forced. If forced. To defend. To defend. Yes. Qualifications. And then further, kind of this, is what the, this is what the UN is for, to make us not have to resort to that sort of action. In fact, that was a that was a, a consistent theme throughout Trump's speech, mm-hmm. um, which I think disappointed some of his more strenuous, you know, anti-globalist hashtag cuck, uh, uh, you know, dickwad followers uh, is that uh, he, he became a big globalist because he, he discovered that the United Nations is another tool in American persuasion. And if you're if you're going to be de-emphasizing um, in actual st- strategery, the stick, um, you might, uh, you might, uh, you know, blow hard on, on, uh, words like totally destroy, which uh, it's a pretty, pretty good phrase there. Um, but if you're not going to get in nation building and these types of things, you're, the United Nations is a tool there. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so he's just emphasizing that, um, I would like to see, uh, Obama, uh, say the same exact thing in that Obama measured tone about Rocket Man. It might be a little more intimidating. <laughs> be like, well, yeah. Rocket Man. Not not as funny, I suppose. Let, let me be clear. <laughs> now, I mean, look, I mean, all of this is right. I mean, this is most of what 
we talk about when we talk about presidents, right? I mean, we're talking about temperament. Do they have the presidential temperament? Is it the timber of somebody's voice presidential? It is implicit in our policy vis-a-vis North Korea since the end of the Korean War, which I guess technically didn't end, it's still going in 1953, is that if you launch an attack on the South, which actually the, the North Koreans have done quite frequently. I mean, they've bought, you know, shelled islands, they've sank vessels, etc. But if you do this overwhelming type thing and it's a state of war, we will destroy you. That's implied, always. Yeah. You just don't typically say it. And the North Koreans say stuff like that, but we don't. Is there much of a difference? No, not really. And, and what, you know, there is a symmetry, of course, with what Obama said. I think the difference is Obama has that sense of, you know, let's dial this back and say, you know, in the same breath, the, you know, the, the, it would be a humanitarian catastrophe. It would be bad for an ally in South Korea. Trump just goes out and says, we'll destroy you. Don't fuck with us. You know, it's kind of like mafioso. And that's different. But is the sentiment the same? It's exactly the same. Yeah. I mean, we can we can take through some of the other things, Matt. You mentioned the frequent references to sovereignty in the speech, but there was uh, there was plenty of other stuff as well. Some vague references to Russia, the threats to Ukraine's sovereignty. That was no vague re- uh, reference. That was yeah, explicit. Yeah, it's ex- explicit, except you and don't say Russia. You don't say Putin. True. Yes. But he also said, I mean, uh, I, I, re- I read this as someone who is uh, as uh, listeners might no, I'm a belligerent towards uh, to Vladimir Putin, and, uh, and as I've as I've discovered, and uh, and I'm uh, a you know uh, defender of NATO and some of NATO's expansion, although not the recent ones. Um, but um, he talked about, and again, this pisses off the Bannon folk. He talked about like those who would undermine our alliances mm-hmm. and things in this speech. So it was uh, there. There was uh, anti-Russian content in there for sure. Yeah, there there was something else um, as well. Um, he uh, talked about he did some some chest thumping there. Uh, talked about the uh, American humanitarian aid to Yemen, which is interesting um, to trumpet humanitarian aid to Yemen a crisis, which the United States is indirectly, uh, maybe directly, helping to actually create and foment by supplying weapons to their ally, Saudi Arabia. Um, and, and he talked up Saudi Arabia as mm-hmm. being like this great uh, ally against uh, radical Islamic extremism uh-huh. um, because he went to that meeting and touched the orb or something. Yeah. And it's like, uh, unless... Yeah. Unless you are uh, privy to information that we're not and judging by his general tenor and activities... Uh, on Twitter and elsewhere, he doesn't reflect the behavior of someone who's accessing some special secret uh, information that's any good. Uh, Saudi Arabia is had continues to be one of the most important financiers of and exporters of radical Islamic terrorism, including the people who fucking blew up our buildings down down the street uh, here in a long time. So mm-hmm. maybe let's not just like name check them as a super great double secret ally uh, in the war on terror. Every single uh, speech that you have, including this one. Perfection, perfection over partners, huh, Matt? Is that, you, uh, that's you, you have to understand, Matt, that this is the perfect venue to do so because you're at the United Nations, which has the United Nations Human Rights Council. And the Human Rights Council at this term right right now, there's sort of overlapping terms, includes great people like Egypt and Cuba and Venezuela. Which he did. He did mention uh, that uh, that that's a disgrace and rightly so. 
No, I know. Mentioned, and it's funny that that at the same time is a big upping uh, the Saudis as as uh, the bulwark against uh, terrorism when it's actually a great exporter of terrorism and Wahhabism. And of course, uh, when you see what they're the the, the fine House of Saud is doing in Yemen, uh, besides creating a whole new generation of Yemeni terrorists, <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, it's it's a great thing. It's just a, a sort of bundle of contradictions in the house of contradictions on the East River, which is the United Nations contradictions, hypocrisy. I mean, it is, it is filled, filled with that. Um, and, and what is the UN, um, without uh, a great deal of hypocrisy, ineffectual, ineffectual programs that don't necessarily work, but you know what? Let's stick up for the UN. Yeah. Someone's got to give me some of the virtues. I was was getting ready to ask for the, the virtues of the UN. Well, I just said, you know, the the, the sanctions that uh, the Chinese are actually having that they're going to bite a little bit on, on the North Koreans are UN sanctions. So. They are official members of the UN and the very yeah, they walked out on this highly, page. highly sanctioned. You can't members not be of a member UN. of the UN. So you, yeah. you got to really work hard <laughs> to not to not get uh, signed up there. No, I don't necessarily defend the UN on on anything, but just to critique a uh, generally speaking right of center, uh, although frequent libertarian critique of the UN and also kind of neoliberal critique for that matter, too. There's there's two critiques that you often hear from the same person, which is that um, the United Nations is ineffective in the face of genocidal slaughter Mm -hmm. or bad behavior by big actors in the world stage. Uh Totally, totally true. Ineffective. They do things. They ameliorate occasionally get involved in some way that's helpful. Usually don't. Um, That is totally true. Some of the same people will say, and the United Nations is a tool for one world government. (laughs) And it's like, you got to choose. You got to choose. You got to just sort of like you want to get to realism, which the the Trump administration is supposed to be. And he name checked the concept of realism in his speech and the people who are. You know, the 12 people who maybe are filling out his his uh, State Department uh, in various uh, triple undersecretaries and stuff um, uh, describe themselves as realists. Well, one of, it, one of those things is a realistic uh, assessment of what the United Nations is and is not. Of, of course, any talking shop of 193 countries is going to be a shit show, is going to waste money, mm-hmm. is going to have like – you know, the hired help getting raped in a corner. And I'm not saying that you should like sit there and tolerate that. You should sure. not. You should sure. go after it. You should investigate it. Um, you shouldn't waste money. You shouldn't do bad things. Um, but uh, have limited uh, aspirations for what the UN can do. And at the same time, let's not exaggerate about their secret power. Probably the best thing that the UN has done um, over the last 20 years, and I'm no expert, so morning I can correct me real quick, um, is <clears throat> the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees coordinates, you know, global refugee policy, which Trump did some both some good name checking of and appreciation for countries like Jordan that really actually deserve appreciation for all the refugees they've taken in because mm-hmm. we are right now in the middle of the biggest refugee crisis since the end of World War II, which does not get nearly as much coverage as it should. Um, but then also Trump <clears throat> had in the same section of the speech, all this incoherent crap about how uh, we've taken on too much uncontrolled migration in this country, which is unfair to the host countries 
because those people don't stick around and lobby for uh, the kinds of internal changes of those governments as they can. Um, you know, uh, you hear that kind of a critique a lot about Syria, like, wow, why don't these military aged males stay at home in Syria and like fight for making their country better? It's like, OK, you first, <laughs> you know, yeah. it's a pretty bad situation uh, there. So the U.N. does pretty good stuff on on actually just ameliorating the refugee and coordinating refugee policies. And the other thing <clears throat> that's done that's pretty interesting, there might be more, um, is uh, uh, the United Nations Millennium uh, Development Goals, which is like, let's fix extreme poverty, um, wasn't l- with a big whip hand, but like, let's let's set these goals of let's eradicate or have the amount of people living in extreme poverty, usually defined as around a dollar or a dollar 25 a day. Mm-hmm. Um, let's measure this stuff in a way, share these, keep this focus as a goal, share the information and also share <clears throat> ideas about what are the best ways to uh, to do this, of which it turns out international trade happens to be kind of like number one on the list. Sure. They've been great on that. And we've done great as a as a globe on ameliorating poverty. They've been not an obstruction to that at all. But it's not it's not clear the extent to which the U.N. deserves any credit for obtaining those goals versus just kind of tracking our progress Absolutely. towards those goals. Yeah, I mean, and essentially just staying out of the way. I mean, I agree with Matt on that, and I will try to do my best and actually um, say nice things about the U.N. or try to find a few nice things to say about it. And I think that mostly when it comes to things like food aid and uh, refugees, um, they do some great stuff. I mean – The question then is, is any of this cost effective and at what cost does it come? Yeah. Both how much, you know, it actually costs in a dollar amount and how much one has to uh, horse trade to get there and what one has to response for it. Um, I will say the other thing is that just a quick uh, aside to the previous aside about about refugees that was the the dingbat there. who uh, was on Glenn Beck's thing? Uh, Tommy Laren is that her name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Tom, Tommy Tommy mm-hmm. Laren. Mm-hmm. I think she's hired by Fox. Lassie Viren. She, she was she, indeed. She, she uh, I think she's on. She's she on Fox now. She's going to be on she's, Fox. She is. A, she's a contributor now. Yeah. Yeah. She's a fucking idiot. She gets uh, the last word. I think on Hannity sometimes. Yeah, she has. Yeah, the last word that you ever want to hear before you put the gun in your mouth and blow the back of your head off. She is an unbelievable halfwit. That's and misogynist. She, she, no, it's true. It's true. She's a fucking moron. <laughs> uh, but no, I'm a f- deeply offended by this because she. T- it was like a tweet, or it was. Uh, it was a tweet, and she tweeted a picture. Um, I think it was like a year ago or a couple of years ago. Um, keep in mind, this is like a, a 22 year old dingbat that went to like Clemson or something and all of a sudden is, you know, you know, opining on, on, on Syria policy, posted a photo of herself. Now it's a photo of herself in a white dress. I don't know what she has to do with it. So imagine, imagine having an opinion and saying, I want to couple this opinion with a photo of myself in a, in like a bathing suit or something. She posts this thing and the quote is here, Americans stand up and fight for faith, family, and freedom. Syrians run away. You repulsive monster. No, they don't. And this is the type of, and Matt referenced this before, I hate this argument more than anything. The fact that, you know, well, they wouldn't be flooding 
Europe if they actually had the balls to stand up to the 95 different factions, including foreign fighters funded by sociopaths and psychopaths across the Middle East to come into their country and blow it up and make it into a goddamn caliphate. This is something that Tommy Lahren said, Americans stand up and fight for faith, family and freedom. I mean, what does that even mean, by the way? And Syrians run away. Go Fuck yourself. Can I can I say something in Clemson's yeah. defense? <laughs> she, <laughs> Herschel Walker she, was the shit. Oh wait, she, she actually went to UNLV. Okay, and oh, I'm sorry. I thought she couldn't be dumber. But apparently she <laughs> oh, no. I was gonna say in UNLV's defense, it's not their fault. Not was, really. Did Tarkanian give her a scholarship because uh, <laughs> she could fucking dunk? Uh, uh, I think that's true. I looked it up on Wikipedia. My personal note on all that is that uh, in uh, in uh, Eastern Europe in the 90s, uh, there's this thing called the Yugoslav War uh, from 1991 to 1995, and in some places even a little bit longer than that. And uh, I got to know, uh, employed, uh, gave uh, shelter in my own home to any number of uh, refugees, some of whom are still good friends. Cowards, all of them. Who are military-aged <laughs> males. And it's like... <laughs> I mean... You're 21. You're a film student. You listen to Jane's Addiction. You like to smoke hash. Do you really want to sit around and get like blown up by uh, Arkans Tigers in, in the Arkans Tigers and the Beehotch Pocket? No, <laughs> you're going to fucking go to Prague and you're going to like to start an art studio or go to film school or find any excuse not to actually have to suddenly uh, feel forced to stab your Croatian neighbor in the neck uh, who you've grown up with your whole life. I mean, it's a completely rational response to that kind of stuff. And it drives me absolutely nuts for people to imagine themselves. It's a, it's a corollary, a flip side to the fucking evil Dinesh D'Souza argument about George Soros, that he's, he's got some new uh, uh, fucktard book uh, out. The big uh, lie, how Democrats are Nazis and everybody's a Nazi, but it's really bad that people call each other Nazis because Democrats are the real Nazis. Yes, that's, I think that's the actual sub- wrote the flap copy. Subtitle, and he's uh, rehabilitating this notion that George Soros was a willing executioner uh, during uh, World War II in uh, Nazi Hungary uh, because uh, he has spoken in classic Soros fashion about being 14 year old during the war, impersonating a Gentile in order to save his skin and wandering around and doing like uh, petty, like uh, door to door errands uh, for whoever said whatever at the time. And he's mentioned like, hey, it was the greatest time of my life, which sounds totally monstrous until you've ever read any memoir of a teenage boy during any occupied wartime ever, because if you're a 13 year old boy, first of all, you are the dumbest human being on the planet, except for maybe a seven year old boy. Uh, and uh, secondly, it's kind of it's it's adventurous. It's this sense of of fun and you don't know any fucking better. So. He said this. Glenn Beck used to say this. I think hopefully he has stopped that since then. But to go and to imagine yourself as a stupid, lumpy American and not all Americans are stupid or lumpy, just mostly me at this point, uh, especially given my uh, lack of adequate painkillers. Um, but uh, those to- cargo shirts are pretty great, though. Thank you. You can you can sense them through the Skype. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, to imagine that someone uh, that you would have been the hero 
1944 Budapest mm. that you would have been the one to stand up in Syria to, to Bashir al-Assad or any one of the 73 different other people like fuck you you would not you would cry and it, cry. It, it's a really important point and I, I and I don't remember I've talked about it on some show and I think I referenced uh, Clive James the great Australian critic and television host and poet and raconteur who is um, in the, the, the end of his life right now and writing the best he's ever written. But he wrote a thing um, on Daniel Jonah Goldhagen's book for The New Yorker in 1996 or seven. And Goldhagen's book was called Hitler's Willing Executioners about the people that, that um, you know, basically carried out the final solution and just how ordinary they were. It was It's a bad book in a lot of ways, um, but it kicked off an interesting debate. And one of the things that Clive James said, which I thought was an interesting uh, way of looking at it, is that the way we look at heroism and the idea that most everybody should in a situation where, you know, Nazis control a town or whoever it is control a town should default to heroism. I mean, James is point was that heroism is something by its very nature that is in short supply. You don't have you know, excesses of this at any, at any time. You don't have surpluses of heroism. And that's why heroes are heroes. And that's why they're special. And I think of this argument about Syrians flooding into Europe. And it's usually with those terms. And look, I have a problem with Europe's uh, uh, refugee policy. I think it's way too schizophrenic. And I think they did a very, very bad job of it. But I think it's an, in, an, an incredible, like, you know, this moral argument that somehow you from the comfort of your TV studio in Dallas, Texas would be taking up a Kalashnikov on the front lines is not something that really comports with reality and history. The people that do these sorts of things in a heroic way, and you talk about the George Soros thing, is that not only was he not a an adult collaborator? There, the entire countries, occupied countries, either participated willingly, uh, excessively, or put their heads down to get on and get along. And that's something that we criticize after the fact. And there's, you know, you know, bookshelf of uh, full of books uh, saying that this stuff, you know, how people comported themselves during the Holocaust or during tragedies. But it's a different thing altogether to say we as a nation. As a as a gene pool, because Americans were all the same, we stand up and fight, and others run away. Is so stupid to be embarrassing. And what Dinesh D'Souza says is something that I think is, um, you know, just disgusting. I mean, he's a he's he's a disgusting piece of trash, and that's what he's become. And I think uh, D'Souza should be embarrassed uh, by everything in his career, starting with his prison There's sentence. Uh, uh, I'm, come on, he's a freedom fighter. The, 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 that shouldn't be – whatever he should have done should have been illegal. He wrote a book called The End of Racism that was actually very well regarded. And if you look, there's a kind of combative review of it in the New York Review of Books from 1994, I believe. And it says, look, the guy's written a pretty interesting, decent book. It's an academic book. And that's how he set himself up before – and it's really interesting, like a Dinesh D'Souza book about how everyone's a Nazi would not be reviewed in the New York Review, Review, Review of Books now, not because it's a den of liberalism, which it is. It's because it's not a serious work. And I think it's an interesting thing that if you compare that to the, the um, GQ piece that came out, I think, yesterday, the day before, about what 
Tucker Carlson has become. Yeah. And I didn't say that as an insult because I really like Tucker as a person. He's a very generous guy and a very sweet guy. And this article is like, you know, this is, uh, you know, performative conservatism. This is like, this is, you know, conservatism, conservatism as a, as a TV business. And that's effectively what D'Souza has become. It's a very weird variety of person. One, uh, uh, just to follow up on the heroism bit that, uh, sticks to me. Cause, uh, surprisingly I was, a uh, uh, rereading some Václav Havel uh, last week, um, it, you know, less than a thousand people signed Charter 77. Like that when you actually get down to the moments when it mattered and will you do something of value in the face of overwhelming uh, sanction, you will suffer. You will go to jail if you do this kind of thing. The vast majority of people will not do jack. I mean, it's exactly right. And we have a recent example of a lack of heroism from Americans. And again, I don't say that as a kind of pejorative, like we Americans, we do stand up and fight. And like, no, actually, we're not heroic. I don't mean it in that way as a criticism. I understand it. But if you look at the Muhammad cartoon crisis, hmm. the number of American newspapers that published the Muhammad cartoons, I think it was one. And I think it was the New York Sun. And I think the Philadelphia Daily News or Inquirer. Yeah, one of those. Had published a few of them, but not the quote unquote most offensive one, which is the Muhammad with the bomb in the turban. Um, and, you know, look, it's a cartoon. People in that are not even necessarily in America are offended by this. It, it requires an act of heroism in some sense to say, like, you know what? Screw them. I'm going to, you know, I might have to live under, under threat, but, but, but the larger principle is what matters. And Fleming Rose, the man who published those in Denmark, um, is a kind of ghost of a person now. He's not, he cannot go to work the same route every day. Hmm. His house is not listed in any public listings in, a, in Denmark, like, like in most Scandinavian countries. All of your information is public and you have to expressly petition the government or the Secret Service has to basically take you out of the register. He is out of the register. He, you know, when it was the 10 year anniversary of the publication of the cartoons, where was he? He was at a Thai restaurant in Wellesley, Massachusetts, way in the back, having dinner with me and one other person. Well, two goons uh, who were very gentle and very nice because they're Danish were sitting up at the front of the restaurant. And I went up to them and I felt bad because I don't think about these things because I don't take those sorts of risks. And I said, hey, you guys want to come join us for a drink? And they looked at me like, no, we have to stay by the door. And I was like, oh, your life has changed forever because you made a decision that that took a lot of balls. And yes, a certain measure of heroism. It's not Audie Murphy dragging somebody, you know, wounded out of a foxhole, but it is a heroic act to stick up for free speech in the face of violent censors, as, it, as we see with the, like the Charlie Hebdo. The uh, other point about heroism, this might transit and in, transition into something else or might not, um, is just sort of the way that we, after the fact, fact, uh, universally uh, laud someone as heroic who in the time that they were operating in totally controversial and not necessarily in a majoritarian type of way and hmm. thinking of civil rights in this country sure. in particular, Martin Luther King, Jackie Robinson, both of those characters who are did like you cannot even come close to criticizing anything about them. And I think that's right and good. I think they're arguably too 
if not the two, certainly two of the top like five American characters in the 20th century for any number of reasons. Um, but boy, that was not a majority opinion in 1949 and 53 and 1960 and 63 and 65 and 67. Yeah. It just never was. Yeah. Um, well, it, yeah, it got I mean, to me that way afterwards. You can also transition there too to just a quick, a quick aside here of last week, the vastly over-considered and over-praised Chelsea Manning, who uh, was mm. a, had a um, Harvard fellowship taken away uh, from her. And I think that that was a bad decision by Harvard, but the initial bad deci- decision was to give her one in the first place, just because I don't believe whether you think that what Chelsea Manning did was right or wrong, it is on its own worthy of a teaching position. Um, that's just a boring point. But Chelsea Manning followed up and said, you know, we are living in a police state. Yeah, not so much. And my first response to that, and it should have been everybody's first response was, you would be in prison or dead if you we lived in a police state. You were in prison, and you were pardoned by the the head cop in chief, uh, Barack Obama, who who can make that decision. And you got a teaching position at the most prestigious university. Yes, I think it was a stupid decision for them to withdraw that. But this, my friend, does not in any way mirror what an actual police state is like. And so when people say, like you know. Like this, we overstate these things of like the heroism of uh, people who are standing up to the Trump administration, the resistance. I don't like using the same phrase that we typically attach to people in France in 1943, sitting in a hedgerow with a with a bolt action rifle ready to put one in a Nazi's neck. Hmm. I don't think it's the same thing to put a helmet on and run down the streets in Portland. And yeah. there's a yeah. uh, there's a commonality there too, which is uh, I don't know what the the, the French uh, joke is in French because obviously why would I speak that language? But um uh but you know. Th- at the end of the war, there was like 5,000 people who had been in the resistance. And within 10 years, that was 500,000. Now it's 5 million and it's probably 50 million. Like everyone is in the resistance after the fact. Uh, everyone was in the dissident movement, including people who just objectively were not like Václav Klaus after the fact. Uh, people cotton on to these braveries because they're these beautiful stories to tell. But when push comes to shove, people are not always very brave. Yeah, I don't, I don't. I really um, hate this this word resistance, and and I think that anybody listening to this podcast um, or listens to it with any frequency understands that I loathe the administration that is currently occupying the White House right now. But I think it's just a bad administration and has done nothing and doesn't know what it's doing. Mm-hmm. I don't believe that we're on the precipice of some darkness where we who make fun of the president will end up in a jail cell. And, you know, I, I heard and have seen people talking about this and I saw it up close on, on inauguration day. And, you know, it, it, it wasn't just one person I saw with the Che Guevara shirt on that, you know, shot people at La Cabana prison that actually put people who disagreed with the policies and uh, the totalitarian drift of the Cuban government in 1959 and 60. And had them shot and had them imprisoned. I mean, that's 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 what they want it to be, and it's not. Thank God. I just can't believe that we allow this kind of language to happen without being consistently challenged. Whether it's Chelsea Manning saying, you know, this is a police state, or somebody else uh, saying that we're 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 really on the precipice of a dictatorship. And look, we had Tim Snyder on the show, and we only had him on for twenty minutes in a special episode, and which. Uh, 
basically Camille and I talked about him when he left the room, but (laughs) he's made a lot of money in a kind of academic D'Souza way, a smarter way. The man knows his history, which makes it actually to me slightly more offensive. He's not going into the books and cherry picking these elements like what D'Souza is. I mean, he's, you know, going to Google books and trying to find keywords and then plopping them into his own book. Uh, Snyder knows the material well, mm-hmm. and he knows what it was like in Ukraine as people were standing on the pits at Babi Yar and getting them in the back of the head. And he has an argument to say, oh, no, 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 I'm not saying that. Well, if you're not saying that, why reference it at all? Yeah. Give, give me a more acceptable, well, well, Mussolini's more acceptable. Well, no, not even that. I mean, I don't think either of those, if you're going to go Huey Long or something, okay. But, but, you know, it's, it's, this, what, nine months in or eight months in, however, nine months in, is that, you know, are, can we now stop and reset and say this is a, I mean, I believe to be a nightmare administration for any number of reasons, but it's not that. Yeah. So many uh, sort of bizarre side effects to the hyperbole and the hysteria of the moment. And, and it feels like we've spent a great deal of time talking about the 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 hysteria and the hyperbole that is so pronounced like all all throughout this administration and in the run up to it the possibility of it the specter of it um and i i wonder sometimes how people are able to sort of reconcile the reality of the trump administration which is frequently embarrassing frequently ridiculous um routinely and almost systematically seemingly deliberately incompetent and just unable to get things done. We've seen it on display recently with the the healthcare uh, legislation, which is back again from the dead for the 15th time. It's still clear that the president has no idea what is in this legislation. <laughs> um, the, the Republicans in Congress are desperate to try to do something before the deadline, but it's not clear what's going to happen. Um, but to, 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 before we go there, um, to pivot quickly back to this point, I, I wish our friend Anthony Fisher was here this week because he actually had a review uh, in the Daily Beast of um, a book by Mark Bray, um, Antifa, the anti-fascist handbook that is that is totally worth reading and is, I think, another the review. indication. Yes, the Not review the of the book because the book is uh, trash. Um, uh, but Anthony puts it in a much more eloquent and thoughtful way um, than uh, than I just did there. And it's worth worth your time to go check that out. Um, but it is the the normalization of sort of violent resistance on the left, not merely showing up at a protest to do something that we we essentially assert as brave, despite the fact that it is consistent with what 98% of the population thinks, perhaps 99% of the population thinks, um, that Nazism, for example, is disagreeable, um, but actually normalizing acts of violence against people who have disagreeable opinions, um, and even degrading and downgrading the threshold required to make accusations like you are a Nazi or to completely redefine things like white supremacist, for example, um, which has been redefined in in our era and racism. Um, And, you know, the conversation about bravery is something that that some that really resonates with me. And I've I've thought about it a lot, like the the people throughout history who have said things that we today understand is just is undeniably true the the justice that martin luther king appealed to when he was speaking um at the lincoln memorial in washington dc in 1964 um 
1963. Yes, before the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Um, you know, to say things that are at the time scandalous and provocative, but undeniably true, and to take serious and significant risks with your life in so doing is a remarkable and heroic thing. Um, to say things that are safe and pretend that they are dangerous, um, to pretend that you are putting yourself at risk when all you're doing is being a, a remarkable asshole um, is something else entirely. When all you're doing is being crass, um, you, you take no risks um, and you are, in fact, an opportunist. And I think there are plenty of working intellectuals and working journalos. Um, and sometimes working has uh, has quotation marks around it, because sometimes after you go to, to prison and you get out, you need to write a scintillating book that you hope can sell so that you can make some money. You're talking about O.J. Simpson? Again? Um, no, I'm not. But I could be. Um but uh, there are other people who who write this stuff and truly believe it. I suspect that most people believe that um, that many people believe that Donald Trump is a fascist and still believe even now that we are on the precipice of having a fascist regime take over the United States. Um, in fact, among those people is Morgan Freeman. We have been attacked. We are at war. Imagine this movie script, a former KGB spy angry at the collapse of his motherland, plots a course for revenge. Taking advantage of the chaos, he works his way up through the ranks of a post-Soviet Russia and becomes president. He establishes an authoritarian regime, then he sets his sights on his sworn enemy, the United States. And like the true KGB spy he is, he secretly uses cyber warfare to attack democracies around the world. Using social media to spread propaganda and false information, he convinces people in democratic societies to distrust their media, their political processes, even their neighbors. And he wins. Vladimir Putin is that spy, and this is no movie script. We need our president to speak directly to us and tell us the truth. We need him to sit behind the desk in the Oval Office and say, my fellow Americans, during this past election, we came under attack by the Russian government. I've called on Congress and our intelligence community to use every resource available to conduct a thorough investigation to determine exactly how this happened. The free world is counting on us for leadership. For 241 years, our democracy has been a shining example to the world of what we can all aspire to. And we owe it to the brave people who have fought and died to protect this great nation and save democracy. And we owe it to our future generations to continue the fight. Join the committee to investigate Russia. Join the fight. That meathead at the. I, I don't know who that is at That's the end. That's Rob Reiner. That is absolutely remarkable. Morgan Freeman, uh, America's favorite philandering, incestuous. What we're grandfather. Hearing right, right, hearing right now is Michael Moynihan being anti anti red baited. <laughs> I mean, that 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 actually sounds like something from. Uh, he said, "This is not a movie script." It sounds like a movie script. 
in like, you know, Woody Allen's The Front or one of these uh, movies about McCarthyism or something, uh-huh. it, it's almost comically over the top that the guy from Driving Miss Daisy just declared war <laughs> on Russia. <laughs> we are at war. Some of that stuff, by the way, is true. Uh, that that the Russians have done this, that, and the other, mm-hmm. none of which is anything that we didn't expect. And one of the things that he said was actually a good thing. One tiny thing. He said, Americans now don't trust the media. <laughs> yeah. Trusting the media before, they shouldn't be. If Vladimir Putin's going to score an own goal there, terrific. Um, but what he's, I think what he means is that they're all of a sudden trusting RT and trusting things on Facebook and not trusting things on CNN or PBS or CBS, um, those people are hopeless anyway. I mean, if the Russians through a troll farm in a like a, a little villa outside of Moscow can make people believe different things, it's not mind control. It's that they're too stupid to begin with. That's not that's not that's not his no great achievement of a KGB officer. And and by the way, is that yes. Russia does do this. They are, there's a whole thing about, you know, is Russia trying to interfere in the German election? Now we don't have any evidence of that. Now we're putting the cart way before the horse when we talk about this stuff. But I mean, how is it that this is like Frank, you know, this is like Frank Capers. I mean, like Hollywood is now mobilizing to fight a war because Hillary Clinton lost the election because she forgot to go to Wisconsin. <laughs> I, it, it, to get me and Moynihan to this place is like that you take, you, 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 that takes effort. Uh, Carl Reiner, uh, Rob, uh, first of all, there's go on the internets uh, on Google image. There's great screen captures. Our uh, friend or frenemy, uh, Michael Tracy, uh, said that he's now made it the uh, the background uh, picture on uh, his uh, on his desktop. But there's a screen capture of when they were unveiling this new like committee to protect us against Russia. Um, and it's Rob Reiner, uh, meathead from All in the Family, uh, right next to Dave Frum. <laughs> like, do you people even know what you're doing? Uh, and I, I say that as someone who loves Spinal Tap and has been friendly uh, on one occasion with David Frum, but disagree with them all the, the effing time. I, you, um, know, you know, I like David a lot, too. And I, I mean, I've known him for a long time, and I think that this I would I would very strongly disagree with this campaign. But we also do already have a committee to investigate Russia. <laughs> yeah, we got a couple of them. We got a lot of them. A bunch of them. Yeah. Like we have uh, a former FBI director now who's running his own little committee to investigate Russia. Totally investigating Russia yeah. all, all over the place. Who, last week demanded demanded various things from Facebook, uh, who had to cough up specific details, more details than Congress was able to obtain from them, um, about the uh, Russian campaign on Facebook to influence the election, a campaign which we still don't know a lot of the details about, but we've talked about in the last three weeks or so, maybe $100,000 spent on advertising on Facebook. Oh, my God. Um, just a, a, a fraction of the total spent by either campaign. It's worth noting, again, that Hillary Clinton spent twice what Donald Trump did on her campaign and still managed to lose. Um, so this $100,000 spent by Facebook is probably irrelevant, um, but still not enough to, to prevent Mark Zuckerberg from making a, what seemed like an ISIS-inspired uh, <laughs> confessional video. I spent a lot of time with our teams on the issue of Russian interference in the U.S. elections. And I made some decisions on the next steps that we're going to be taking, and I want to share those with you now. First, let me say this. I care deeply about the democratic process and protecting its integrity. 
Facebook's mission is all about giving people a voice and bringing people closer together. Those are democratic values, and we're proud of them. I don't want anyone to use our tools to undermine democracy. That's not what we stand for. There will always be bad actors in the world, and we can't prevent all governments from all interference. But we can make it harder. We can make it much harder. And that's what we're going to focus on doing. So today, I want to share the steps that we're taking to protect election integrity and make sure that Facebook is a force for good in democracy. And while the amount of problematic content that we've found so far remains relatively small, any attempted interference is a serious issue. I don't um, like to make it to Facebook. <laughs> I'm sorry. I hold up the newspaper. I'm alive. <laughs> Facebook Live. Dude, this is so enraging because everyone forgets the second kind of pivot in this story is that we are dealing with people who the bigger story here, let's not bury the lead. Are people stupid enough at $100,000 spent to like mobilize some people in an anti-immigrant way? They're like, you know what? Before this, I can't believe it. I was like, you know, ferrying people across the border. I was like handing out toys at the border and like water when they crawled into the wire. Now I'm going to vote for Trump, uh, you know, build a wall MAGA. That didn't happen. I mean, they might have, they might have spent money. And like, good God, what a bunch of fucking idiots if they spent money, $100,000 on Facebook ads that had no effect on the election. Can we get some causal relationship here? <laughs> but we've forgotten everything about this. We are spinning our wheels in such a way. And Camille, I wanted to go back slightly because he was talking and made a very, very good point about when you say it's okay to punch Nazis. You also, ha we happen to live in an era where everybody's a Nazi. And if the president is a fascist and you want to punch fascists, I wouldn't recommend trying to punch the president because he might be <laughs> for a long time. But the thing about it was the word that you said was normalization. And I've heard that word a lot in the last week and particularly with the Emmys. Mm -hmm. And Sean Spicer came out to make a little yuck, yuck joke, which I didn't see because I, I just, I just not enough hours in the day to waste fucking Sean Spicer jokes in the Emmys. But it was like, <laughs> all these people who I know and like, like, this is how normalization happens. Am I the only one? Because I saw not a single person pushing back on this. But am I the only one who's like, you know, it is normal. And the reason it's normal is because he's the president and Sean Spicer was his press secretary. That's right. You don't get any more. We might, we might not like the new normal. We might, might not like 60 million people voting for Donald Trump. I certainly, you know, am uncomfortable with it. But that means it's normal that 50 percent you know, just under 50 percent of people who've cast a ballot voted for Donald Trump. So what are we going to do? Say we can't normalize it. So what should we do? Do you remember when people said, I hope or Rush Limbaugh said in 2007, 2008, I hope President Obama fails. Mm -hmm. And everyone said, good God, how much of a scumbag is this man and how much does this man hate patriotism and, and, and hate America and black people and also hate black people fails is that, you know, we're going to make them so abnormal that, you know, obviously that's beyond hoping they fail. And I think, you know, I don't want to ever be in the position of defending Rush Limbaugh, but good God now like this patriotic ads from, from Morgan Freeman, other people saying, you know, we can't in any way be collaborationists because we're the resistance. I want the Trump administration to not destroy the country. Uh, do I want their individual policy proposals to fail? Uh, some of them, yes. But you know, this, this idea that we're normalizing 
what 60 million people already made normal is absolute balls. There's also, um, you know, the word normalization had some uh, specific meaning in the Cold War, not to be an old person here. Uh, and You're wearing it, cargo shirts, dude. <laughs> Man, they're good. They're like new. Uh, that's not, that's not good. Dude, that's worse. Actually, dude, that's actually worse. That's worse. You just bought them. <laughs> the, my wife bought them for me dude, in Germany. Decision. Oh, they're German cargo pants. I'm that wearing... changes everything. Exactly. Yeah. All cargo pants are German cargo. <laughs> dude, all cargo pants matter. Uh, that's you the worst. German, Matt. Like you know, ambling down the streets of like Bangkok in cargo <laughs> pants and like socks and sandals. German listeners, it's true. It's, it's true. true. The streets, the streets of Times Square are filled with cargo pants. They're the worst. I want to inject waddling the sons of Nazis. <laughs> <laughs> I want to inject a note of optimism that occurred to me uh, previously when Camille was getting negative, uh, which is that. Um, Despite the normalizations or the, the you know, uh, the discussions of punching Nazis and all these kind of stupid ethics of uh, of uh, violence against people who are not violent that we've talked about a lot here. Um, two things give me a little bit of hope. One is that after Charlottesville, it seemed pretty clear that a swath of the alt right, the alt light, whatever that is. But Anthony Fisher always says it. So it must be a thing um, <laughs> uh, like freaked itself out. And mm -hmm. like they like dialed it back mm -hmm. um, and are like questioning themselves. I mean, when you're running people down with a car um, like and, and then that's actually was a tactic that people various people were or had been suggesting for a while, like to deal with Black Lives Matter protesters and other kinds of things. I think maybe people were scared straight from that. It was, in the wake of Charlottesville, there's this feeling like, oh, we're on the verge of like brown shirt violence in this country. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like we're on that verge. I feel like I feel like it. It's possible that it had the other effect of people going, oh, shit, which is something that we saw after the Timothy McVeigh um, hmm. bombing in 1996. Like that just that croaked that whole kind of movement at that time of uh, militias and uh, and uh, sort of uh, uh, that kind of uh, right wing uh, weirdo get your guns uh, thing that was that was very prevalent during the initial part of the, the Clinton regime. The other part that gives me hope, and it's a random anecdote, and I shouldn't put uh, that much into it, but again, uh, oxycodone, um, is there was in uh, one of the recent uh, We Love Trump rallies at uh, – um, in Washington D.C., a clip that went viral, so it must be true. Was that this? That was from this weekend. Was that this which, weekend? Which, which happened? Which coincided with the Juggalo rally? I think uh, they like shared the same space where they invited the Black Lives Matter activists yeah, yeah, on, up there. on the stage. It's a great video. It's a super great video. Um, in in which, uh, it, clearly the crowd's like, you know, screw those guys. But the the speaker in the pro Trump was really good. It's like, hey, look, this is America. We don't agree with you. But in the spirit of free speech in which we're all here, we're going to get you up on stage, giving you two minutes, give us your pitch mm -hmm. and a very kind of like on edge or ready to be like negative audience is not totally won over by the end. Yeah. But like they're kind of friends at, at the end. It's a very and the uh, Black Lives Matter spokesman uh, or whoever, a representative uh, was there, gave a pretty great like, hey, this is what we're talking about is. 
Americanists. We want our rights fully realized and this yeah. kind of th- stuff. It was uh, I know you can't you, feel the eye roll. I'm but, sure yeah. that there were a lot of things that made you eye roll. But uh-huh. in terms of what happens when human beings decide we are antagonists mm-hmm. and we are going to let uh, the, the kind of free speech medium allow us to deal with each other without the punching uh, and this kind of stuff. Um, and have a conversation in an American context on that, not necessarily each individual part of content, uh, mm-hmm. content, mm-hmm. I found it to be uh, heartwarming. Yeah, I think there's there's something there's something to that. And I I was going to do this uh, a bit later. I mean, we do have um, a, a recent case that is uh, just been resolved um, in St. Louis. And by resolved, I mean, we, we actually have a decision in the case. Um, there is a, a piece in the New York Times today. It's an opinion editorial entitled, When Will Black Lives Matter in St. Louis? And I'm pivoting a little bit, even though I, I did want to get get you guys to comment on some of the uh, the Manafort uh, revelations from earlier this week. So hopefully this won't be a, too long of a detour. Um, <clears throat> but the uh, this opinion piece references, it opens by referencing Mike Brown and Darren Wilson um, and the fact that in November of 2014, a grand jury decided not to indict Mr. Wilson. A few months later, federal investigators cleared him of any wrongdoing. Yes, this is true. Three years later, changed the names to Anthony Lamar Smith and Jason Stokely. And here we are again. That's not how it works. <laughs> um, That's kind of not, how it not, works. not really. You I mean, they changed names. You know, there was there was actually an investigation in November of 2014. Grand jury, yes, reached their decision and the federal investigators reached their decision. But this this entire piece, this very long opinion piece, heartfelt, obviously, um, written by uh, Nicole Nelson, who is a staff attorney for Arch City Defenders. And if Arch City Defenders sounds familiar to anyone, that is because this is the same pro bono um, legal outfit that represents a number of low-income, frequently minority people in the St. Louis area and helps them to defend themselves from oftentimes like really punishing legal infractions that happen to have financial consequences as well. It's something that Radley Balco talked to us about when he was here on the show some time back. And if you haven't read Radley's piece on this, which talks about the work that Arch City Defenders does that's very good. It is worth reading. Um, But this piece is just sort of agonizing in its consistent return to the theme of black lives and racism and discrimination and the fact that what is happening here is so clearly about racism. Um, Even concludes with the the following, when will black lives matter in St. Louis? Question mark. Which local leader will finally step up and stop government from continuing its long, complicated, and devastating history of racism. From our view, military tanks, tear gas, rubber bullets, and dishonest narratives won't bridge this gap anytime soon. The Ferguson Commission and the Movement for Black Lives, a collective of more than 50 organizations representing black Americans, have outlined a number of policy recommendations that would positively affect the black community and poor people end cash bail, demilitarize law enforcement, and stop criminalizing poverty, St. Louis officials must take these demands seriously to be willing and be willing to implement them. Uh, Until then, St. Louis law enforcement officials will continue to find themselves locked in a pattern, wondering why black citizens take to the streets demanding that police stop killing us. Um, There is an important conversation to be had about criminal justice reform. We've talked about this on a number of occasions. I won't dwell on the merits of this particular case because, quite frankly, I haven't been following this one case. One case is an anecdote. This is not, you know, how we uh, how we get to 
profound revelations about the world around us. One thing I did see happen, however, um, that I thought was particularly good is that the NAACP in St. Louis actually released a statement today. Um, and the statement that they released um, was specifically calling for um, there to be a law in St. Louis mandating independent investigations of police and of police shootings. That is only reasonable. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, not to cut you off here, but I, the, the, I mean, you, I think sometimes you can react to the emphasis on and the rhetoric surrounding the black lives and this and, and the, the race aspects of it. And you react to it negatively uh, for reasons that I um, uh, uh, am growing to agree with you on at least somewhat. It's taking uh, you too long, Matt. You got to come on. Uh, uh, you know, walk, walk through my shoes, man. Um, <laughs> but uh, nonetheless, that op-ed mentions three pretty concrete reforms, and uh-huh. those are all at the, good, at the end. concrete yeah. reforms. And I, I, and I agree with that. And I want there to be more juice and more success for similar reforms in, in the same way that uh, the NAACP mm-hmm. uh um, because uh, the the state of investigations of police shootings in this country and the the deck stacking, particularly among uh, grand jury investigations of mm-hmm. the type that occurred in, in Ferguson, even though I think that ultimately that grand jury uh, uh, came to the right conclusion from everything that I've seen uh, uh, since then. But well, the still, concurrent federal investigation, right? Which, came to the same. I mean, the the initial report, which was scathing of the Ferguson Police Department, the second with the forensic details, et cetera, yeah. like seemed to confirm what the grand jury concluded. But we shouldn't. In that case. We shouldn't have shouldn't to have to that. It shouldn't exactly. It yeah. shouldn't have to come to a politically motivated. And I don't actually say that as a pejorative, but like a motivated federal government that got into it because this became a huge issue. Um, and brought in some really good investigative resources to bear, it shouldn't have to come to that. There should be structures in place to investigate uh, lethal, non-lethal uses of force and local police. And once you start to unravel that, um, you're going to get a lot of uh, ends that are going to make a lot of people who otherwise stress the racial aspect that you don't appreciate as much, it's going to get them to goals that they appreciate. And I think that's all they got. I mean, the the concluding point I'll make on this is, you know, when when you write a piece like this and one tenth of it maybe is reserved for recommendations, recommendations that you don't unpack in any sort of meaningful way, you don't explain how this could have tangible, a tangible impact on this problem. When you don't bother to contextualize this as something that actually impacts all Americans, um, this to me is problematic. You are actually making it more difficult, not less difficult to make progress. And the reason why this Black Lives Matter crowd uh, finds themselves and at odds with the uh, MAGA crowd when they show up um, isn't because the MAGA crowd doesn't think Black Lives Matter. It isn't because they think that black people should be executed in the street. That certainly seems to be the way that they approach the issue. Um, and, you know, I could talk about some of the disparities and, and shootings and stuff, and I, I won't I won't do that also, right now. I don't know that that's necessary. Let's, let's throw out one, one thing, which uh-huh. I think is a real thing uh, on the MAGA side, uh-huh. which is that if there is a dispute between a cop totally and someone else yeah. the cop is right yeah 
There's a, there's a yen towards authoritarianism there. And you actually see it in that video at some point. Sure. T- the, re- the guy references the shooting. And I don't know anything about the shooting, but nor did the woman in the crowd, as far as I know, who said, um, uh, you know, he was you know resisting arrest. It was or he, actually he, about he Eric, Eric Garner. Oh, it yeah. is about Eric Garner. Yeah, they oh. were talking about Eric Garner. The guy on stage said, you know, we can't get choked to death on television and nothing happened. No one does anything about it. And she responds, but he was a criminal. But this is what I'm talking about. Like, this is the problem when the conversations you're having are, one, dominated by the specter of racism, and two, primarily about anecdotes and saints. Like, it's it's not the merit of the overall claim that you're making. It's not the general details about this broader societal problem. It's the specific details of a particular case. And what what matters is whether or not it's Rosa Parks sitting in the front of the bus or it's Michael Brown who punched the cop in the face after stealing the cigarellos. Was he a gentle giant or was he a moron, an asshole, a monster? Who knows? But that becomes the issue when, in fact, there really are tangible issues here. And I'll tease something that I'll likely talk about later. I hope to be talking about later. Um, but some weeks back, New York Times um, had a piece uh about, I'm going to screw up the name of this opinion piece, but the title of which was something along the lines of why are commercial airlines safer than police stops? And it was an article about a man by the name of Michael uh, Bell. And Michael Bell Sr. is the father of a young man named Michael Bell from Kenosha, Wisconsin, who at 21 was stopped by the police in front of his house. And It was a routine stop in the middle of the night, maybe one or two o'clock in the morning. And he was shot to death in front of his mother and his sister. Um, There is an entire story that is like worth paying attention to and worth knowing more about. Um, Mr. Bell is white. His son was white. His blonde haired son, as he describes him, was shot and killed in front of his house. Within 48 hours, as Mr. Bell tells it, um, the police had pretty much adjudicated this matter so far as they were concerned and cleared themselves of wrongdoing. Man. No meaningful investigation had taken place. No interviews with local witnesses, no forensic investigation, no nothing. They'd cleared themselves. And he was shocked by this. His expectation was that there would be some kind of meaningful investigation, kind of like you do when there's a plane crash. Um, which he had, which he had some experience with because he, uh, he has a background in engineering and mechanics. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's not what they do. Police investigate themselves. And in order to get answers, he has to hire a private investigator and eventually all manner of details starts to come out. But the man launches a campaign, a campaign, which includes billboards that, say specifically, if the police kill someone, should they judge themselves? This is the question, right? And I know for a fact that this isn't about race. Like statistically, it's not about race to the extent we're able to talk about this because we don't even have the data to really talk about this in informed ways in some in some respects. But at any rate, I've, I've, I've sort of gone down this road um, a little further than I, I intended to and perhaps revealed a little too much about something that I may be working on later. So um, hopefully there'll be more on that later. But I am pleased 
at that development with respect to this particular case um, and don't have any further thoughts on this particular case beyond uh, what I just shared. Um, do you do you gents have um, a few minutes to, to devote to this uh, to the recent developments with the Manafort situation, or do Let's we just, hate do we hate this just, Russia investigation nonsense so Russia, much? We've Russia. We've Russia. We don't get, want to talk about let's it. Let's get some stuff that we hate. All right, Winhan, are you are you fine with that? I mean, I hate a lot of things, so yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to think of something I like. Yeah, yeah. Debbie, a change. Okay, so, so we're gonna we're gonna forgo these wiretap revelations. Um, and here's here's the thing: if it turns out to be a thing. If it's actually worth talking about, you know, we'll talk about it next week or something. Um, if it doesn't, then a lot of people are wasting your time. Um, and uh, that's something, something I totally hate. random in the in that kind of universe of, of uh, Manafort and stuff. Uh, my friend Rebecca is in uh, um, Alabama mm. and she sent me a text message and said, look who I ran into. Um, and, uh, she's like a, she's a, like a lefty, um, like a lawyer, like, uh, for the indigent and blind and, and, and poor. And she, uh, sent me a picture of her, which appears to be at a bar with, uh, Seb Gorka. So I just wanted to pass that on. <laughs> <laughs> if you're in Alabama, uh, Little Rock tonight, just go prowl in the streets. You might uh, find the great British Hungarian, uh, maybe fascist himself. <laughs> Do you know who uh, turned out to have a pretty killer Seb Gorka impersonation in him? Chris Hayes. Chris Hayes. Hmm. Like – just did a hashtag. I, I can't even do it. I mean, he was much superior to my uh, version of Sep Gorka. Hmm. He, he could really, uh, he, he nailed it. Well, but I'm not surprised by that. Back when he's, uh, well, you know what? Maybe he, we should stop being surprised uh, <laughs> by the impersonations of Chris um, Hayes. I will say one thing I do hate um, related to this story in particular um, is, you know, we have the phone tap drama, which is, is back again. And a, a lot of conversations about whether or not the president um, has been vindicated. This is like the third time he's been kind of sort of vindicated uh, about these particular Twitter claims he made and not to weigh in on that a at all. Um, one thing I've noticed about the coverage of this story, however, from both the sort of pages of the Wall Street Journal from different opinion columnists um, to sort of Aaron Burnett and various other folks at CNN who are covering this story um, and insisting pretty forcefully that, nope, this is not a vindication of the president. Not going to put my opinion on that uh, on the table at all. Um, what I will say, however, is that in a lot of the discussions of the, the FISA program, of the masking um, and the, the various other attributes of these programs, um, the minimization that is supposed to be taking place when these wiretaps take place, uh, the warrants that are issued. Um, I see, I keep hearing people say things like, oh, well, I mean, they don't, they don't issue a warrant unless this is a big deal. We don't know that actually. Yeah. There's a, there's a, a, a tweet storm by Benjamin Wittes, who's one of those must follows in the mm -hmm. Trump lawfare. era yeah. at Lawfare. And he's very well sourced and well known. He's a friend of uh, uh, Jim Comey's and things. And it's a very convincing 12 or 13 point tweet storm here, but it boils down to like, they don't do this unless they're totally serious. Mm. It's maybe that's true. Maybe we don't know, but like, <laughs> I, I don't, I don't know. 
Yeah. Um, uh, I, you know, the 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 main refutation to the idea that this was a politicized FISA warrant was that it was in 2014 and who gives gives a shit right. about Paul Manafort in, right, in right. 2014. And it was extended and, more recently. And it expired actually during yeah. the time when Paul Manafort became interesting yeah. for the first and last time in his life. Uh, so um, that and, you know, the terms that Trump used at the time about McCarthy and this kind of stuff was just yeah, yeah, it's yeah. garbage. Uh, I, I mean, not, none of that. None of that stuff is what what I think is important here. I mean, I think it's forest for the trees. When the unmasking happens, it's not clear that anything that was done was illegal. With fairly amorphous standards, with guidelines or at least with uh, justifications that an administration is able to use, as a matter kind of, of fact, on a whim. Let me vociferously like, interrupt and and agree with you, which uh-huh. is which is to say that the if we're just like just the faxing this. Um, the 2014 FISA warrant on Paul Manafort expired and the Justice Department dropped its case against him hmm. <clears throat> because they felt like there wasn't enough to prosecute. So maybe, I mean, we all do things that are illegal. You've done many things to me illegally in this room <laughs> tonight with my cargo shorts, but we're not going to get there. Um, time's running out. But uh-huh. um, but they didn't come up with a case. So, yeah. yeah, the the like, oh, my God, they got a warrant. It must be serious. I presume Paul Manafort is five trillion times corrupt, guilty and awful. Mm-hmm. I just as a general statement. Um, but I also have the impression by reading the reporting of what Miller is trying to do with him is that he's just. Uh, I mean, you can indict a ham sandwich with a grand jury is the famous uh, aphorism. And um, he's re-looking at things that the Justice Department has already stopped looking at Mm -hmm. uh, because Manafort's his most useful person in this to try to get something upwards towards Trump. Um, And my warning to all Democratic friends who are rubbing their hands and being like Carl Reiner, uh, Rob Reiner's dad, who tweeted out uh, today or yesterday something like, I can't imagine a more exciting thing than for Donald Trump to be revealed as whatever, a Russian stooge and uh, and then Hillary Clinton to be, uh, uh, you know, uh, installed as president. Can't imagine works. a more exciting <laughs> thing for all those people who are like exciting is the word that they use for all of this. If. Uh, Robert Mueller is going out with pretty flimsy ham sandwich indictment style stuff to try to roll a witness upwards towards the president. You want these things, especially the higher profile they are, to have political legitimacy mm. in addition to legal legitimacy. And uh, and I hope for whatever sake that he's coming up with that it does. Yeah. And I, I hope the journalists will be just a little more disciplined in the way that they discuss these things. I, I'm confident that hope is in vain. Um, but masking and minimization um, kind of bullshit uh, and uh, worth worth noting that that at a minimum, they uh, these techniques are questionable and that there is a lack of transparency with these programs that could, in fact, lead to their abuse when they are in the wrong hands. And, oh, hey, did you know that Donald Trump is president now? Um, sorry about that. Forced you guys to talk about it anyways. Uh, what do you hate? What did you read that was loathsome this week? What idiot wrote uh, wrote it a thing? So Moynihan and I uh, were at a party on Monday. Is that is? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. This is a good. Time. Is the hangover? <laughs> did you, is it over yet? No. Uh, no, I I haven't. I'm still drunk, so I gotta have to be. <laughs> I have to sober up to be hungover. I right? literally lost my phone. 
after that party. The best thing about oh Matt, I want to point it out, and I wish if I, I wish if I had the energy, I would open my email um, that Matt sent out a, a mass email to anybody who had ever contacted him and said, "If you need to get in touch with me, use email because I've misplaced my phone." That was a misplacement. Did you did you it find was, it? You got it back. Was, okay. It was half the information because <laughs> the full information is I'm a shitbag alcoholic and I don't remember what happened after 10 p.m. That's not like my, where I put my my phone. mom is listening to this, uh, and so <laughs> no, Mrs. Welsh, you should Townsend. know that your son has a drinking problem. <laughs> it is a work related function, and the drinking is a requisite. No, it's just like the these the, with this pain medication, it's really hard to regulate your sleeping patterns in the back of taxis. Anyways, mm-hmm. so <clears throat> it was a party for Lionel Shriver, who uh, is an uh, author, very funny. I've got great pictures of Moynihan with her uh, gesticulating wildly. Um, and uh, we had done an interview with her. Uh, she got into trouble because she gave a speech in which she basically called BS on the notion of cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. And at, Not at a that, thing. At that speech, and she's like, "Yeah, that's what we should. We're, that's what we're doing. We're, we're like, I'm a novelist. That's why we gotta like get into other people's lives and explore those things and mix and match." Um, I mean, her line is very good, and it's in the New York Times piece that she wrote. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna destroy it. But she basically says that as a novelist, if I can't get involved in the business of cultural appropriation, everything I do is memoir. Yeah, that's a pretty good distillation of it. So uh, at at one of her speeches that became infamous or whatever, controversial, she uh, like put on a sombrero. Uh, and people like, oh, my God, oh, you can't put on a sombrero. And so <clears throat> Catherine Mango Ward, editor in chief reason, great publication, uh, interviewed her like four or five uh, issues back. And Joanna Andreessen, the great art uh, director of uh, reason. Good friend of all of us um, uh, did really great uh, uh, design on the interview, which included a bunch of cutout dolls where you could have like the basic Lionel Shriver, um, uh, who's actually pretty ripped and uh, like tan and like the muscular. Uh, uh, fun- yeah, they were paper dolls. Uh, they were old paper, dolls. old paper dolls. So you got her like in a sort of a leotard and then you could put various uh, culturally uh, appropriate or inappropriate things on her, including a sombrero. So. I'm going to read you a headline and a subhead of the New Republic, and I'm going to, for those of you who are of a certain age, um, uh, I'm going to ask you to remember what the New Republic used to be like in a lot of different, whatever era you want, but just basically more than five years uh, prior to now. Here's the headline and subhead. Does the right really think a sombrero is just a, quote, straw hat? (laughs) Subhead, at a recent party for the Libertarian magazine, quote unquote, reason, (laughs) guests were given a paper doll of Lionel Shriver to dress up in outfits from different cultures. (laughs) (laughs) So many things wrong with it. So the idiot who wrote this is Josephine Livingstone. Who I presume is old enough to vote, but it's not. There's, it's not clear. Uh, and the first sentence is: If the right believes that cultural appropriation is not offensive, why are they making paper dolls that ridicule other cultures? Um. I'm, yeah. So, uh, first, uh, Liber- uh, the Reason Magazine is not of the right. It's libertarian. It's a different place on the spectrum. 
some some libertarians are kind of right, some are kind of left, some mm-hmm. are kind of floating up in the special place. Most are pretending to be libertarians, but that's another story for that's, another day. I'm a lino. I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie about that. That was directed at you. Thank you. Um, why are they making paper dolls that ridicule <laughs> other cultures? It is an entire – it is so – I recommend actually that people read this. Usually I don't recommend that people do this, but like go through I – mean, It is so fantastically stupid that I thought it might have been a put on by whoever purchased the New Republic after the um, idiot uh, Facebook guy came in and destroyed it even more than it was already destroyed. Um, and the great thing about this is – the utter stupidity of the article. The, I mean, it's really poorly put together. I mean, I just think an editing standpoint, it ends with two large block quotes from Lionel Shriver, which are incredibly reasonable, as if all of a sudden it's transitioned into a newspaper article and there's the, 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 the argument um, falls away. And uh, uh, the, I'm going to give you a sample of it. The figures are headless. This is talking about Joanna's um, uh, paper doll. Well, yeah, they're headless because they're paper dolls and you actually put them on. <laughs> you know, this is this is a little touch enabled thing where you can touch a screen and it says I'm a fucking moron. <laughs> the illustration is lighthearted. Well, yes, it is. But this gesture of reduction mm. of complex peoples and histories to empty and headless outfits, interchangeable and undifferentiated. It's a paper doll. Well, this is why. I mean, that's the point, <laughs> ding dong. Make the joke feel clumsy and shallow. No, it's actually quite a good joke um, b- because this this person who has zero creativity could never come up with anything even close to this. A culture is not – and by the way, this is the ad infinitum argument from these numbnuts. A culture – and I've, I've heard the exact same thing in the exact same phrase. So I mean I don't – you might not want to appropriate culture, but you probably don't want to uh, appropriate or plagiarize uh, sentences, because this is this thing you hear all the time. A culture is not something that you can shrug off, shrug on and off like a jacket. I don't know if you can shrug a jacket. People are not dresses. People are not hats. You're right, motherfucker. They're hats and dresses worn by people and sometimes by particular people who wear them in particular environments. I don't know why this is so hard to understand for Mrs. Livingston. I'm glad she has her first writing gig outside of, you know, the Daily Tartan or whatever stupid college newspaper she wrote. That that Reason distributed these images. They Pornographic images, like your <laughs> Nambla or something, at a private party in promotion of its keynote speaker is further testament to the rights, the rights, lack of understanding oh, of the gosh. actual issues that surround cultural appropriation and make it a sensitive subject. Mrs. Livingston, Josephine, <laughs> listen to me now and listen to me for the final time. That sentence, which is one paragraph, makes no sense. <laughs> Much in the same way the idea of cultural appropriation makes no sense. It's a phrase and it's not argued in any way. It is taken as implicit that the people who read this argue, argument or this uh, this piece would think that a lighthearted paper doll set where you can put different outfits on somebody who wears a sombrero at the Brisbane Literary Festival is funny. And it was well done. The illustrations are great. And I am absolutely baffled that people – I guess she was there. Oh, who knows? Yeah. Um, I, 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 who knows that she knew there was the – I don't know. I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't see any people that looked this dumb there. Uh, you know, the, 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 the biggest thing that she got wrong is uh, – well, actually it wasn't her. It was uh, 
the great uh, quote uh, from Lionel Shriver herself, who <clears throat> starts her quote by saying, I thought it was utterly charming, inventive, playful and funny. <laughs> so, uh, whoops, I guess there's no scandal there. And uh, yeah, weirdly, this is a prize winning novelist, the author of We Need to Talk About Kevin um, and a bunch of Mandibles, her newest book and a bunch of other fantastic books whom I trust on the ideas of what is charming, inventive, playful and funny more than I do some slobbering college student who decided that they could write at the New Republic now because nobody else will. Oof, so the last sentence, <laughs> going to distill this stuff and sell it on the, on the street. Uh, the last sentence of the Lionel Shriver quote and therefore the article, which, as Michael points out, is uh, uh, horribly constructed, is uh, this is from Lionel Shriver. The term libertarian has been much tarnished by association with some rather strange people. But these folks were sensible and sane if by the end a little tipsy. I'm sorry. I'm just going to fact check that. <laughs> I wasn't, that wasn't a little tipsy. That was By the not. way, if you're a polemicist, as this moron thinks she is, you don't end on that. You don't, you, you don't cede the ground to Lionel Shriver to, to end on a fun quote that is like, you know, yeah, there's a bunch of weirdo libertarians, but these folks were cool and they were all drunk. No, it's a half-hearted yeah, gesture. Right? It actually it's a great kicker to your argument. Yeah, it it uh, it's a it's a reminder, I think, that uh, you know, New Republican Salon, both of which made a lot of strenuous and I think convincing arguments in the 90s and the aughts about the danger, dangerous roads of kind of like political correctness and identity politics. It's a, just and free speech and what that all means. It's just amazing to see how much their bread and butter is just this kind of half hearted uh, garbage peddling. Yeah, I mean, it's almost when when, you know, the Dinesh D'Souza's of the world, and I'll mention him because because we talked about him tonight, be like, you know what, it was uh, Democrats that were responsible for slavery and for racism. It's like, yeah, it's not the same thing uh, in 1860 as it is in 19 and in 2017. And I feel the same way about like associating the new republic in, you know, many of its incarnations is a lot of, to hate about it and disagree with it on and say that they did some crappy things and made some crappy arguments. But it was always a pretty, pretty fun and interesting read, even when I hated it and disagreed with it. And, you know, even in its later years, you know, reading the like literary criticism of Adam Kirsch or something um, or, or, or making fun of Marty Parrott's you know, in Leon Weaseltier, at least there was some something interesting. I mean, this comes out of some sort of 2017 identity politics hot take machine. And you just put <laughs> it and Lionel Shriver and you get you get a new piece as a uh, as a kind of parting uh, shot of uh, positivity that's based directly on that. I tweeted this out. Uh, to our uh, friend, my friend, uh, Gustavo Ariano, the uh, great Ask a Mexican uh, writer, editor-in-chief of the OC Weekly, and a guy who's written really uh, uh, smartly and funnily about uh, the essentiality of uh, cultural appropriation, how it's totally great, especially for Mexican culture, and therefore why the burrito is now uh, – or the taco is now the, uh, the, uh, the real American food supplanting the hot dog. He wrote a piece – that Joanna actually illustrated for a reason back in the day, cover story. And incidentally, um, I went to a taco truck with Gustavo in, in um, Santa Ana, I believe, in California um, about three or four months ago. And he told me that when he was writing his book, Taco USA, and remember, Gustavo is like, you know, pretty liberal guy. I mean, he's not some kind of guidable libertarian or anything. Um, he said that, you know, when he was doing it, he set out with the idea that this was 
an example and, uh, and a kind of shameful example of cultural appropriation. And when he came out the other end of actually doing journalism, um, as opposed to, you know, sitting in your apartment in Brooklyn and, you know, typing up hot takes, which is basically what I'm doing right now. Um, <laughs> and, uh, 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 going out and actually reporting, he found that like, oh, what a stupid argument that is. And here's why. And it's in his book. Yes. Uh, and uh, it's great. So I tweeted out that and we should get Gustavo on the show because he's really super funny uh, and wants to come to the show. And Sounds think, like a racist. Thinks that we're racist can... for uh, not yeah. inviting him on. Mm-hmm. Um, but he said, uh, uh, oh, actually, I wrote about the sombrero. Check this out. An, an appropriation. And it, look on his uh, Twitter feed and on, on mine, he wrote this really great, interesting essay about uh, the rise and the uses of the sombrero in the American South hmm. uh, and what that says about migration patterns and also about assimilation and a bunch of different things. And it's just great. I really recommend it. Uh, you would, you know, we, you would probably agree with 90%, maybe disagree with 10%, but it's very well informed. And if people were actually serious and not half-hearted about these dumbass cultural criticisms. They would go to people who've been writing about this intelligently for 15 years, but who also appreciate that America is a big fucking mix. And that's why we're great. So fuck you. I don't know if I can add anything to that. Um, we didn't even talk about Valerie Plame and we're done. Uh, she's anti-Semitic. Um, so uh, <laughs> Rosh Hashanah uh, to Valerie Plame. And uh, I am now going to uh, go watch uh, episodes uh, three, finish episode three, and then four, uh, get started on four of the Ken Burns uh, Vietnam. Vietnam documentary, which so far, by the way, is very good. I didn't expect to, that, uh, that I would be enthusiastic about it, but it's very, very well put together. So it's a, a little tip for you. You should, should watch it. It's good. Very good. All righty. Well, I think we're done here. Done very good work. The Lord's work, in fact. Maybe Amen. we'll see Moynihan next month. <laughs> next week. Well, just- Next week. Put on a fucking pair of proper adult pants and maybe I'll come. <laughs> See? <laughs> See? See? Look at that. Be nice. Exactly. Bye. We, 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 we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan horse.